0: This is the Average Conservationist Podcast, brought to you in partner with 2% for Conservation. 2% for Conservation's mission is to create an alliance of businesses and individuals that ensure the future of hunting and angling by committing their time and dollars to fish and wildlife. 1% of your time plus 1% of your money equals 2% for Conservation. 2% helps businesses and people pair with conservation causes to support things that fit what they care about. Whether you are into fishing, hunting, or just getting outdoors, 2% can help you not only start giving back to wildlife, but get you certified for it. Getting 2% certified means you've made the same commitment as popular brands like Sitka Gear, First Light, Stone Glacier, and Seek Outside, in giving at least 1% of your time and dollars back to wildlife. But it's not just outdoor companies. Breweries, contractors, even coffee roasters, and piano repair companies have earned 2% certification and stand out as leaders in their communities for doing so. Businesses that are committed to conservation deserve your business when you shop. Learn more about 2% for conservation at fishandwildlife.com. That's fishandwildlife.com. Welcome everyone to the Average Conservationist Podcast. I am your host, Marcus Ewing, and this is episode number one. For many of the listeners who do not know me, I started a company about a year ago called The Average Conservationist. Now, The Average Conservationist is an apparel company that promotes and supports wildlife conservation. Uh, Right now, I sell hats, t-shirts, and sweatshirts, and donate 10% of all sales back to conservation groups. Uh, You can find us at theaverageconservationist.com. Uh, I started the company with the goal of trying to make as much of a difference as possible um, in terms of protecting and preserving our lands and waters uh, and the wildlife living there. Uh, I wanted to really do my part to ensure that future generations would have the same opportunities um, that I do to hunt and fish and recreate. Um, You know, I've been very fortunate to meet some incredibly genuine and like-minded people um, over the past year since starting the company, um, and I would say none more so than Dan Johnson. Uh, so most of the listeners, if not all of you, know Dan as the founder of Sportsman's Nation. Uh, he's also the host of the Nine Finger Chronicles podcast and the Hunting Gear podcast, and um, and Dan and I had, had went back and forth and, and both kind of agreed that we needed or that there needed to be a podcast that was centered and geared towards mainly conservation. So really, Dan and I kind of went back and forth for a few months and and had some ideas. And, and during this time, Dan became uh, a board member for 2% for Conservation. And, and shortly after that, with bringing... into the fold, this whole idea of the average conservationist podcast really started to take shape. So 2% for Conservation is a nonprofit uh, that focuses on businesses and individuals who donate 1% of their time and money back to conservation. Uh, Well, fast forward, I guess, three months, and here we are Recording our first podcast on the Average Conservationist podcast. Um, so really, before I go any further, a very big shout out to Dan Johnson for his role uh, in making this whole thing come to life. Uh, you know, partnering with Two Percent on this podcast, it's it's really given me some great opportunities to speak with people from from all over, really, and, and talk about what conservation means to them and how they're spending their time. You know, I'm going to be speaking with people who have, you know, regular jobs, but put an emphasis on conservation, and and really, this is the exact type of person that I wanted to celebrate when I started the Average Conservationist. Um, and then on top of that, we'll also get a chance to speak with um, representatives from some some very large outdoor companies um, who put a a big emphasis on conservation, giving back time and money. Uh, as well, and and really, what I hope is that after listening to some of these podcasts and some of these episodes, is that it'll inspire you to to get out and, and get involved and give back um, if you're not already. So, um, so really, enough about that. Today, um, I am joined by Jared Fraser uh, of Two Percent for Conservation. Uh, we talk about all sorts of stuff. We talk about you know growing up and what conservation and what the outdoors looked like to Jared. Uh, We get into some high-level stuff with 2% for Conservation, what their goals are um, in the future, um, and some of its business members and how it actually came to be. Um, I think this episode gives you a good look and understanding um, of 2% for Conservation, uh, the work they're doing, and why I was so excited to partner with them. So without anything more, let's uh, jump right to it. Okay, on the podcast today we have Jared Fraser with Two Percent for Conservation. Jared, how's it going today?
1: Really well. It's a beautiful spring day here in Manhattan, Montana.
0: Yeah, same uh, same here in Michigan. We were really fortunate to have nice, almost seventy degree weather um, this past weekend, and then uh, kind of snap back to reality a little bit, and we're down into the low to, or excuse me, the mid to upper forties. So, hoping that weather uh, changes back here soon. Yeah. So Jared, being from 2% for Conservation, and this is a new podcast that um, the Average Conservationist and 2% are launching, why don't you tell our listeners a little bit about what they can expect to hear from the 2% for Conservation and the Average Conservationist podcast going forward?
1: Yeah, so having, having a, a podcast outlet... You know, nowadays, as, a, as an organization, as a cause, or even as a business, having a place where you can disseminate useful information for the people who follow you, who are um, committed to your cause or committed to your brand, is just essential. Um, it's, it's almost as important, in some cases, as having a website. You know, right now, people aren't commuting, but um, it's, it's a, a valuable tool that you can use to be in touch with folks <laughs> all the time, uh, whether they're in their commute or at home at night studying, what, or sitting out in the turkey blind like many folks are right now. It's, it's a super valuable tool. So we wanted a place where we could talk about just common conservation principles, um, where we could talk about conservation issues in, in different regions, where we can talk about how folks can get engaged in conservation in their everyday life, whether as, uh, let's say they're a teenage kid, a retiree, uh, folks like you and I, who are in the middle of our working careers, um, whatever their walk of life may be, maybe a business owner, maybe an employee of a business that supports conservation or is interested in it. We needed a place to be able to talk to folks. So when, when you and uh, Dan Johnson, who just came onto our board of directors, approached us and said, hey, we'd love to have a place for you to be able to do that, we were stoked. Um, we'd been working on a couple of relationships over the last couple of years, hoping to build out something like this, but you guys kind of came with a, uh, a pre-wrapped Uh, opportunity to do this so uh, as far as content uh, some of the first folks who will be coming on after me are some of our committee leaders Uh, and these are folks who are volunteer leaders with over a hundred different conservation groups across the US Canada uh, soon to be Europe as well we have two uh, candidates in Europe to join our committee program and conservation efforts over there uh, and as we continue to grow our committee program, which are, again, they're, they're point people to, to send people to who are looking to support conservation causes in different regions. As we add more folks to that, we can bring their expertise where they volunteer into this podcast for them to talk about what they're doing, where they live. And I think some of the first ones you were, you were mentioning before we got you know, start, started with recording uh, there's, there's Mark down in Georgia. He does a lot of stuff with the QDMA and a bunch of habitat things on the border um, there by, you know, S- Savannah, Georgia area border, of South Carolina and Georgia. Um, Greg in South Dakota, who works with a pile of different groups, um, whether it's goats or turkeys or whatever, uh, they're all in these different regions. They're volunteers who support these causes that listeners know of hopefully and if you don't you get to hear about these cool causes and what they do and how you can get involved with what they do but they're also just hyper regional like a lot of folks don't know that there's mountain goats in south dakota um or that they could actually volunteer and be involved in helping maintain that population for for future generations or uh, like some of our members down in Florida, all their work with trying to get the water situation taken care of and invasive species down there and how people around the world get involved with that. These folks volunteer in these spaces, but the coolest thing about them is that they're average conservationists. <laughs> they are normal folks, blue-collar folks. They're, they're, uh, some of them uh, work in the medical field. Uh, Mark, down in Georgia, he's a realtor. Uh, Greg, in South Dakota, works, works in uh, 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 the medical field. I saw a photo on his Instagram the other day of him in a helicopter uh, working, I think it was life flight stuff. Uh, these, are, the, these people weren't born into any kind of conservation families. They didn't inherit uh, job titles with conservation groups. They're everyday folks who have decided to make conservation a big part of their lives and they've kept their normal jobs as they've gone about it. So there's gonna be cool stuff like that, um, and, and hearing people that are similar to yourself as a listener, you'll be able to hear folks who probably have the same job as you doing incredible things with their lives, maybe even in your area. Um, and then in addition to that, we have many, many 2% certified brands uh, like Sitka Gear and First Light and Stone Glacier and Seek Outside and Argali, uh, we've got firearm company, we've got a piano repair company in Alabama, all these different certified brands that will be hopping on to talk about why they give back and how they make it work for their businesses, um, so that it's fiscally responsible, of course, and they're taking care of their employees and their families and whatnot, but also how they've been able to make their commitment to conservation a part of their everyday operations. And again, their businesses, not all of them are outdoor industry folks. Many of them are, what big air quotes, normal businesses. Right. (laughs) Um, uh, To to come on and and talk about that, uh, which is something that's not typically something you hear in a podcast. Um, and hopefully it's it's super impactful uh, for the listeners and uh, encouraging and emboldening to make conservation part of your everyday life, no matter who you are. You don't have to be anyone special uh, to be involved in wildlife conservation. You just have to have the commitment.
0: Well, yeah, that's in, kind of like what you said to, to start there. What I really liked about the idea when Dan um, approached me about it was there's not really a lot of podcasts out there that are specifically uh, centered around conservation, right? I mean, right. we everyone in the outdoor industry, whether it's hunting, uh, fishing, backpacking, everyone knows how important conservation is. And while I think there's a lot of people out there who, who make it a priority, um, we tend to see a lot of the bigger names in the industry putting the emphasis on it. Um, and I really loved the idea of speaking to, you know, like you said, average people out there who have regular day jobs, um, that aren't in the outdoor industry, talk about their commitment and their passion for conservation.
1: Yeah. Yeah. When we, when we launched our, our committee program, uh, last year, and again, the the purpose of it. These are folks who are they're, they're volunteer leaders in their regions for just a myriad of, of conservation things. So the, the criteria was um, you know, they had to be someone that if, if someone called them up and said, I want to support what you're doing in your area, they'd be able to articulate it very quickly, um, and they'd be able to ensure that they could put support to actual conservation work immediately. Um, but the, the crazy cool thing is, these are not folks whose names you may have ever heard before, but they've been running the show in conservation in their area for some time. Um, now some of them are younger. We do, we do have a college student in, and, uh, at at Caltech. Um, but he, he's kind of running the collegiate fisheries program there and it's really the only, uh, um, citizen, uh, angling conservation opportunity in the area. Um, So just really really neat stories and and hopefully the listeners here You know, this is someone like me. Um, yeah, they're very articulate. Yeah, they're great at communicating and 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 whatnot Um, and that's not everybody obviously, but they've done with their lives incredible things And that that's attainable for anyone
0: Yeah, I agree completely. So that brings me to my next question so for you jared What did the outdoors and what did conservation look like for you as a young kid? You know, because we all get introduced um, to the outdoors, whether it's hunting or fishing, um, at different periods of our life. I mean, I've 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 met and and spoke with a lot of people who would consider themselves uh, adult onset hunters. Right? They don't Mm. get involved until you know late twenties or or thirties or something like that. So, for you, what did you know? What was it like for you? Or when did you get introduced to um, to to the outdoors? Crazy
1: early, man. Um, <laughs> I've been told by my parents I had wild game before I was supposed to really be having solid food. <laughs> Um, and it was out of necessity not not to be cool. Instagram did not exist. Instagram challenges for making babies eat fish and venison did not exist, which by the way, those are very unhealthy practices. don't don't do something with your babies because it's a Instagram <laughs> challenge. Um, but when I was uh, just over a month old, um, my parents I, I was born in the late fall. My parents were out ice fishing, and they drilled a hole. Uh, just slightly less than a than a foot deep. So for folks who don't live uh, where where the water gets hard, uh, in the winter, it freezes. And it can freeze quite, quite deep, uh, some of these lakes. And this one in particular could freeze very deep, very fast. So they drilled a hole about a foot deep and they put me wrapped in a blanket in that hole, so the hole didn't go all the way to the water, it was just a foot deep into the ice so that they could run around and and chase the different tip-up lines chase you know the the walleye
0: so they basically <laughs> swaddled you in the ice
1: they swaddled me and put me in a in a little ice hole uh, so that I wouldn't roll away, and so I was out of the wind, uh, so that they could go and get tip ups. Uh, tip ups are, are these apparatus that are basically like automated, you know, uh, hook setting machines for for catching fish, uh, wild game and and uh, wild fish. Um, is there a good, proper term for that, by the way? And anyway, um, that that was how. That was how our family survived. Um, in the first year of my life, uh, well, the first year of their marriage, they made less than five thousand dollars for the entire year. Wow. Uh, and then I was born the next year, and I believe they were still under eight thousand for the entire year. Uh, so we were we were down at the bottom of the swimming pool, and the the you know the water was the poverty line. You know, the water line was the poverty line. Um, so hunting and fishing were I mean, they, they were just part of life uh, from my earliest, earliest memories. Uh, I am in the vast minority um, as a, I'm technically a millennial, though I'm on the older end of it. Um, I'm in the vast minority of someone who had, A, both parents at home, uh, and, and B, uh, a parent that was into hunting and fishing. And in my case, it was, it was both we're, were very involved in that. Um, but it was for subsistence. So the idea of conservation uh, and and wildlife as a resource was there, but it was in a we are starving, we need food mindset. And there are some things that are outside the, um, oh, what's that word for... uh, when you're outside a liability for it, there were things that were done <laughs> that were not legal by my by my parents when I was a baby, sure. uh, just to, just to feed us. Uh, and they even had they they worked with at risk kids in a very drug and alcohol abuse heavy uh, part of northern Wisconsin, in a tiny tiny little town called uh, Winter. Actually, I was I was born in a town called Winter, which I, I do love the cold, um, but they they were working with these kids who had horrible alcohol abuse at home and and physical abuse from it and drug abuse at home and the physical and emotional abuse from it. Um, So the wardens actually would work out with my parents on roadkill on where they may have seen a bunch of does, you know, um, on party hunting when party hunting wasn't something that was allowed. Uh, My dad uh, did deer hides for several years, I, I'll never. Once you've smelled a truck trailer full of deer hides, you'll never forget that smell. <laughs> um, he trapped a lot to help pay the bills. We we built uh, uh, fishing poles for ugly stick. Um, I uh, remember the smell of weaving the uh, weaving the string to make that you know the the classic ugly stick pattern at the yep. at the base of the rod yep. above the cork stuff and the lacquer. Um, but the, the conservation mindset was, this is a resource that we need, so let's take care of it. And as I as I got older, um, and parents started, you know, making more, uh, and changed careers and stuff, and being able to take care of us, and I started having more siblings. I've got four younger siblings, which nowadays would be immensely difficult to do. Yeah. Um, they started doing more with conservation. Uh, my dad helped put in a, a trout hatchery in southern Wisconsin. Um, And it was around that time I started hearing about my family's conservation heritage on on my dad's side with uh, my grandpa and my great-grandpa actually building the first muskie hatchery in the state of Wisconsin. The muskie is the uh, uh, state fish in Wisconsin, and they built the hatchery for the Wisconsin DNR when they realized that they needed to rebuild it. Uh, As I got older... We started doing stuff like Secchi discs, which is, it looks like a pie plate, but it's made out of metal or wood with a weight on the bottom of it, and it's uh, cut like a pie, four corners, uh, two corners being black, two corners being white. You lower it down until you can't see it anymore, and you mark the depth, and then you report to uh, the different agencies how deep it goes. We started doing stuff with loons. Um, When I was uh, in my early teens, I'd go and spend Almost every day uh, after lunch, I'd go out in this little 10-foot r- fiberglass rowboat we had, and I'd row around uh, the little lake we lived on uh, for muskie. I'd, I'd, <laughs> I'd put a fishing pole underneath uh, each leg and just row, um, row-troll. And, and you know, I was an 11-year-old kid catching 35, 40-inch muskies after lunch almost every day. Uh, get him the with boat. a very, very strict catch and release policy for conservation purposes. Even though I was coming from this family where we needed the meat, um, there were some things that were too precious. Uh, we built wood duck houses, and we, I've, I did not shoot my first duck till I moved out here to Montana because where we lived, waterfowl were so rare. Even though we could really use the food, we would not shoot them, and we'd build houses for them to protect them. So it was a very weird kind of dichotomy uh, that built my conservation ethic out as a kid, but it, it came from my parents, grandparents, and family members.
0: Well, that, that's interesting that you say that because at that point in your in your life and with your family, knowing how important and how vital wild fish and game were to you know the health of your family, mm-hmm. you know, in terms of putting food on the table and and, and eating and whatnot that you still had the wherewithal to, you know, practice catch and release, um, to not, you know, go out and, you know, shoot waterfall, uh, or anything like that, but you were still doing all this work to ensure that there was a healthy population. I mean, I think that that speaks volumes to, to your parents and the, uh, respect that they had for, uh, the outdoors and for the, the wildlife.
1: Yeah. Yeah. We, we
0: actually, um we had to kind of split the house
1: in half. Um, when I, uh, And I'll explain what that means. Um, on the back porch, uh, my mom had a bunch of bird feeders for songbirds and squirrels and stuff. And then out the front, Uh, Is where we had the deer blinds turkey blinds, and stuff in the woods So there was this rule like out the front. We shoot things out the back. We don't You know, we don't shoot songbirds why because you can't you know, you can't eat them with you know, the 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 French um, You know uh, Satan's nectar cuisines uh, uh, aside, Uh, we don't shoot songbirds Um, No order on here and and that that permeated everything um, and it was from a in in their case, it was a, a somewhat from a, a religious mindset of of stewardship uh, mandates for them uh, but then that also kind of ran headlong into the reality of you know we need to eat so we we got as many tags as we could um, the goal was to fill the freezer so like when i was when I was younger, a young hunter, big bucks was not uh, that was not the thing we talked about, but as I got a little older. And as my dad transitioned back into the family business, out of working with kids and stuff, uh, back into the family business, five generations deep now of plumbing and heating. Um, he's That's what he's doing right now. He owns the family plumbing business in northern Wisconsin that was started back in 1918. Oh, wow. Uh, yeah. Um, as he transitioned more into that, there was more income. So we started looking at quality deer management. You know, we we weren't shooting... Uh, every single buck that came in, we weren't shooting nubbin bucks. You know, uh, when it came to turkeys, yeah, you could shoot a jake if you wanted to, but it was preferred that you shot, you know, a decent tom. Um, same went for grouse. You know, uh, only go and you know shoot one or two um, a, a week. <laughs> you know, uh, and really trying to take care of the resource to ensure that it stays there, um, and that pivoted. And it gave me a bit of an education on, yeah, with more income, you're starting to be able to make more choices, which has really helped me now in my present role when I'm looking at different regions of the U.S., Canada, and especially overseas and in, in third world. Uh, I'm using big air quotes because that, you know, that term has its connotations. Um, third world, less um, uh, economically opportune, or opportunity equal areas. Conservation is not something that's on someone's mind necessarily if they're struggling to survive. And knowing that going into some of these relationships and conversations as we bring on business members and work with conservation groups in those areas, knowing how to talk about those things is something that as a child, I can guarantee you, five-year-old me would not be thrilled um, you know, at the notion of not getting to have venison or something like right. that. Um, but as an adult, I'm able to, you know, look at both. So it's invaluable, but, uh, you know, for folks listening who grew up that way, we all remember being hungry, you yeah. know, and we don't ever want to feel that again. And understanding that when we talk about wildlife conservation and, and decision-making, I think is, is vital. So,
0: so obviously a very rich history in the outdoors and, um, conservation practices, um, growing up. At what point in your adult life did you know that conservation was um, was the career path for you, or was the avenue that you wanted to go down? When it became apparent
1: that my volunteering with conservation groups was not economically viable for my family <laughs> at the level that I wanted to, so uh, at one point I was I was volunteering five to I'm. I'm I'm a bit of an insomniac, so I, I do a lot of this volunteer work at night writing you know, letters to the editor, writing policy stuff, um, event planning, graphic design for it and whatnot. I do a lot of it at night. And at some points I was, you know, five to 10 hours a day um, towards towards uh, the end of my outside of the cons- conservation world career. Um, I was volunteering almost like it was a second job. Uh, and it was not economically viable for my family for me to continue that.
0: Yeah, volunteering um, doesn't at, necessarily pay the bills in that regard.
1: Not not really. No, <laughs> not even close. <laughs> Especially when you're also buying life memberships to orgs and yeah. memberships with, the, you know, and hey, we need all these supplies. Oh, don't worry. I'll buy them for the event. You know, um, I've, I've got a very patient wife um, in, in that regard. Um, that's, that's when I kind of knew. But, but what flipped a switch for me was when, I, when my kids were very, very little. I, I have a, a seven, uh, soon to be eight, and a recently turned nine-year-old. And when they were about one and two years old, um, my, it was like a paradigm shift as far as how I saw the world. Um, I needed to ensure that them and those that, you know, that they had uh, you know, my grandkids, if if if, if my kids have kids, um, and even if they're not related to me, that they have the same opportunities that I've had. It was around the same time of them being toddlers uh, that I watched um, our new home here, Montana. Uh, I, I moved out here in 07 the first time, and we settled down here in, at the end of 2010. Um, as I saw Montana change, change quickly and habitats start to get paved over here in the Bozeman area. Um, I've, I've now lived here long enough to see favorite hunting spots turn into condo developments uh, and parking lots and, and favorite fishing spots get absolutely blown out um, or filled up with dirt and or you know, streams rerouted or they don't exist anymore because they're a culvert now so that they could put houses on top of it. Um, to see all that happen uh, which wasn't something that I had really seen happen in, in northern Wisconsin, because that had happened b- just before me being born. Um, the, I mean, there's still some some big development going on there, but not as in your face as it is here, where the population has doubled since I've lived here. Um, and where, I mean, even even in the small town here in Manhattan, there's a spot I used to sit in glass that now I've got a friend who lives in that Um, (laughs) that housing development that's there, (laughs) you know, so, and that's a, this is a tiny town. We've got one four way stop, you know? Um, so to see that keep happening, that just catalyzed me to, I need to be on the side of slowing that down. Progress is good. And I've been on the side of economic uh, decline, and right now we're obviously in this time of economic calamity. Um, I've been the the town I grew up in was was a dying town. It's actually shrunk since I moved out when I, um, way back in 04. Um, it's it's like a thousand people less than it was before. Um, I I know what that looks like to have your town town slowly die away and whatnot. It's bad. Uh, but wanton development and wanton use of the resource, it's that's where the term the tragedy of the commons comes when when we're not managing the shared resource and we just let everyone do what they want with it, it gets destroyed and the resource doesn't exist for anybody. And it just played out right in front of my face. So that was about 10 years ago. Um, And it led to me buying memberships with every group that worked with what I cared about. Some of those memberships I've kept up. Some of them upgraded to life memberships because I, I truly believe in their work. Um, and and want to be able to have a little bit more of a voice in what they do, and that often is what a life membership will get you. Um, and some did fall away. You know, um, when you're when you're finding conservation causes to partner with, it's it's a little bit, um, you know, like dating in some sense, or or uh, we often internally use the term church hopping. You know, if someone's trying to find a church in a new town, they they tend to go and try four or five of them. Same goes with, with conservation causes. You're typically going to try a few before you find one that you know you really align with. and uh, we're really fortunate here in Montana to have many, many great groups to work with, and, and even here in the U.S, and um, there are some groups in Canada that, that I like to partner with as well, um, because they they share resources and ecosystems with us. We're not that far from the Canadian border. So partnership is is key. Um, but it it started slow not with the intent of getting a job in conservation. Um, and the, the reason why I, I took this role is because I believe that the partnering between individuals, brands, and conservation causes is the future. Um, we've seen governmental failure all over the place. Government's made out of people. It's not that government itself is bad, it's, it's, it's a tool. It's not intrinsically bad, it's the, the people that you put into it. Um, but individual uh, responsibility um, both fiscally and, and with your time is something that I've seen in my personal life pay out in, in big, big ways um, for habitats, ecosystems that I care about. And as we look at the future of funding for conservation to, to insulate um, causes, and as we look at what's going on right now, uh, with major, major um, uh, budget shortfalls for almost all wildlife management agencies, almost all land management agencies uh, because of budget cutting and intentional snipping to try to make those those agencies fail or, or less productive so that they can then be manipulated for private gain, we really see the the huge, huge importance of businesses and individuals taking personal responsibility for the ecosystems around them. So I don't know if I would have taken a job with any other org necessarily, (laughs) but when this one popped up, it happened to be at the exact time that that was what I was living out and what I was seeing to be our strongest tools moving forward uh, to get the most work done for the lowest dollar possible so that people can personally thrive, businesses can thrive, but also we're not absolutely destroying and doing away with these habitat areas that future generations hopefully we'll get to enjoy and utilize to the same degree that we've been fortunate enough to be able to do.
0: Yeah. And that that's a very good point with making sure that this, uh, that the habitat is still there for generations to come. Because to be honest, when I started the average conservationist that played a very big role in Mm. my decision to, uh, to start the company Um, back to what you were saying earlier is You know, my outdoor um, pursuits, adventures, you know, what have you started at a young age as well with my dad. And, you know, I I lost my father about 10 years ago and I have kids of my own now, young kids. And so wanting to be able to share those same experiences with them that I was able to with my father growing up is Mm -hmm. something that was all of a sudden became much more important than maybe, you know, five years ago, six years ago when I was just enjoying the outdoors, um, you know, both hunting and fishing. Mm. Um, so it's, it's nice to hear that there's other people out there who have the same view or the same reasoning behind wanting to, um, be on the right side of, of habitat and fish and game going forward.
1: Mm.
0: Mm. Yeah, it's, it's a piece that I think we're we're going to
1: see a resurgence of. Uh, there was a big surge in the in the late 80s, well, early 80s, moving uh, it kind of caught steam um, moving through the mid into the late 80s that launched a bunch of the organizations that are kind of household names now. Uh, Elk Foundation was tiny back then. It was like a group of friends, same with the Sheep Foundation. Um, and a bunch of the federations and whatnot were, were quite small, you know, when we were around the time we were born. Uh, but they all started out of this, hey, there's a lot of, lot of habitat loss going on right now. On a, uh, And then there's, there's these cycles that, you know, continue, you know, history repeats itself and all that. Uh, these cycles of Economic prosperity, but that economic prosperity usually comes at the cost of the ecosystem, at least in the old way. Now, as as we as each generation builds on the work of the ones that came before us, we're finding better and better and better ways. So, where you used to have organizations saying, "Let's go clear out a bunch of habitat by logging it for all of this," um, you know, for our our partners with the logging companies. Uh, to keep them happy. Now we're now we're seeing. All right, we're going to log this portion. We're also going to do prescribed burns in this area because it's better for bringing back these uh, key um, these key species of of plants that these different species of animal eat that all you know work in this in this cycle. Um, and, and a greater understanding with, with better data. So we're, we're in one of those cycles now, um, the upturn of conservation coming back up, we've got more orgs starting up, we have a higher membership uh, surge going on with orgs that have been around for a long time. Um, you know, like Many groups like the Elk Foundation are, are reporting much, much higher member numbers and huge surges of member numbers right now. Um, and it's around this, hey, we're, we're seeing this degradation of of the resource. So let's try to fix it. Let's not kill our economy doing it. Let's not shut down all the businesses doing it. Let's just be smarter. And we can do that now. So it's it's a wonderful time to be getting involved in conservation, um, and it's a wonderful time to see your work play out in the real world in a tangible way It's where you can put a pin on the map and say, I fixed that, or I saved that. Um, it's It's a... Incredible thing to be involved in,
0: yeah, and you know to be honest, with the whole emergence of social media um in the last what, seven to ten years, let's say especially with things like Instagram, where now every person who you know shoots a deer or a turkey or whatever is is posting something about it, um hmm. I think you're getting a lot more of the younger generation involved in conservation groups because they see that other people are and they want to um, be included and they want to be around like-minded people. And I think from there, I think their focus on conservation is growing. I think that that's, you know, they join to be like a part of a group, um, again, of of like-minded hunters or anglers. But then once they get involved and they see all the work that these orgs are doing, I think that that's just kind of going to lead to a trickle down effect where, you know, for the future generations are going to be more involved because let's say their dad was, you know, if their dad's, you know, in their thirties now and, and takes an active role in conservation that their kids will see the same thing as they grow up. So I think it's like you said, it's, it's, it's an uptick in terms of people that are being um, introduced and becoming more active in conservation.
1: Yeah. And, and, and we're seeing a, a lot of very intentional and mindful Um, program building by groups who are understanding that, unlike you and I, at least half the kids uh, who will be taking over conservation in the future don't have two parents. You know, um, they don't, uh, they're grown up in single homes where the adult in the home is just strapped for time trying to raise them, right? Mm -hmm. So they're they're coming up with really great ways to engage folks um, and to keep Keep uh, conservation at the forefront, and that's just absolutely exciting to be involved in, uh, yeah. and to help help uh, make it more accessible for folks. It's it's not an old white dudes club, It doesn't yeah. need to be, um, and it never should have been. Uh, and we can make those adjustments uh, without we can make those adjustments without radical change or throwing anyone under the bus, which is is a you know just a great thing to be involved in.
0: Yeah. So you started to talk about it a little bit earlier. 2% for conservation. Why don't you tell some of our listeners who maybe aren't um overly familiar with it what exactly 2% for conservation is and how it came to be.
1: Yeah. Yeah, so we're a nonprofit which means uh we're not well, <laughs> we we uh are, are not built for making a profit. Uh, and we mean that in the true sense with 2%. <laughs> we, uh, the way we operate is it, our main program is we certify businesses and people, or maybe family foundations, uh, that give at least 1% of their annual income and 1% of their time to fish and wildlife conservation. So what that looks like, uh, if, you're, if you're a business, uh it's super simple. Uh we we've got an application packet. Uh you actually did it yesterday, um filling out you know a commitment to give your, your dollars back over the coming year. And then we commit uh to that time with you um on the two percent side to help you hit that. So um like let's say uh I'll, I'll just use the piano repair company down in, in Alabama uh for example. He gives at uh, it's, it's a bit more than 1% of his, his gross sales, but he, he gives it to local waterway and habitat reclamation uh, causes in his area. Um, we don't touch those dollars. He doesn't send it to us first and then we send out. That's not how we operate. He sends it directly to them, and then at the end of the year, we certify that he's done it. And we keep tabs with him over the course of the year. In addition, there's the 1% of time. And what 1% of time is, is 21 hours, that would be 1% of one employee's time if they had a 40 hour week, if we wanna get into the math, but at least 21 hours, uh, that can be spread across the company. So whether it's like the piano repair guy, who's, it's, it's one person, or if it's someone like Sitka, who has piles and piles of employees and piles of contractors all over the world, we still are only requiring 21 hours. And the reason for that is, as you scale as a business, just keeping track of those hours would become very cost prohibitive very quickly. You'd have to hire someone just to keep track of the hours. And at that point, that's money not going towards conservation. We don't want to be in the way of that. So what we what we ask instead is use those 21 hours to the absolute best of your ability. So like Sitka will often go to D.C. you know, Or like Seek Outside uh, in Colorado, they're Colorado based make uh, uh, ultralight tent backpacking products. Uh, The Tims and their staff, they volunteer their time with multiple conservation groups as volunteer leaders within those conservation groups. Um, We've got uh, coffee companies, they'll go out and do uh, cleanups and stuff, or they'll volunteer their time talking about being uh, businesses that, that give back to conservation. We want to make it adaptable and attainable for anyone. We actually have uh, teenage kids in the Midwest who are babysitters. We can't put them on our website because they're minors. Um, and we respect their privacy, because uh, you know their parents uh, would like their privacy respected. But on <laughs> their babysitting business cards, they have 2% certified. Um, and these are, I think this year, those girls are turning 13. Yeah, something like that. So when they got certified though, they were 11. Oh, wow. My son is my son is nine, <laughs> you know. So, um, it it doesn't matter what your business is, what the size is. That's the beauty of it being a percentage is it's scalable. So for businesses, we we just have the application packet. You have to have proof of being a you know legally operating business. That was a little tricky with the teenagers, obviously, um, but. You know it's attainable for everyone for individuals, it's more of an honor system because we don't want to be looking at you know folks as tax returns they're they're private ones and and with businesses we we don't necessarily always have to look at tax returns for that too. We have other accounting things we can do uh to fit within the legal parameters for the certification. but for individuals, it is honor system, and we just warn folks you know if you lie on your application um you know, you're, you're gonna get Lyme's disease, Giardia, dysentery, never you know, <laughs> fill a tag again, probably break your ankle just going shed hunting. Because so, um, conservation karma does seem to be very, very real. Um, <laughs> but for individuals, we wanna keep it painless and, and simple, um, so it, it is on our system, but the goal is to have, whether you're an individual or a business, co- a commitment of your time and dollars to support conservation. Um, those essential things of time and dollars move everything in the conservation world. Um, where there is an element of talent, of course, we, we do have certified musicians and artists and photographers, um, but we, you know, you can't really certify talent. That's, that's, uh, that's subjective. Right. Um, but we can certify time and dollars. So. That's, that's what we do as our main program, and then all of our other programs, like our Bozeman Conservation Convention, which has been kicked back to August, uh, is built to support that, uh, interactions between the businesses, conservation groups, and individuals that support them. Our committee program with uh, supporting and, and having all these different volunteer leaders from all these different organizations around the world, um, that is built to support that certification as well. Uh, We have our annual conservation media awards, uh, which Sitka has been uh, super generous in sponsoring. Those are to acknowledge media that's focused around conservation, and as, I mean, that's the whole point of this podcast, having media that's focused around conservation to have it be top of mind for people, so that it is something that's in the cultural ethos um, for those who live in the outdoors to always be thinking about conservation to, again, uh, back up uh, the certification, so uh, for the, the way we, we operate our funding off of that, um, with our business members, there are annual dues, uh, but they scale at about the same pace as the Better Business Bureau, and actually cap um, at, at a certain size, uh, because again, we want to have as many dollars going as possible to all these different conservation causes that people are passionate about and that are just absolutely vital to taking care of habitat and species populations around the world. Uh, so we intentionally keep our dues nominal, very small, um, and we keep our requests uh, for any kind of funding very, very, very small. I'm pers- my, uh, we, we give our annual report with uh, what employee you know, pay is and stuff. My personal uh, pay is less than the state average, Uh, for my job title and and way below the national average. Uh, But that's intentional, and and I put that on myself because we want to show in good faith, you know, we are here to support the conservation work that's already being done and to enhance it. Our mission is to have an alliance of businesses and individuals that ensure a future uh, for fish and wildlife conservation funding, uh, and having that be through time and dollar commitments. So that's what we exist for. Um honestly when two percent launched, um, I was surprised that it didn't already exist. Uh I was I'm actually member number seven. I signed up in the first day of uh two percent's existence because it was started here in the in the Bozeman, Montana area, uh out of the Sitka Gear offices and it was I think Randy Newberg uh, posted it on social media that hey, you could get certified, and I saw it like, it, I think the Facebook post was still under one minute, it was like 52 <laughs> seconds ago, uh, and I just applied right away, so it was like, this is, how did this not exist? Uh, and when 2% was being founded, um, Sitka actually came around to different volunteer leaders in the area, and said, what would you like to see? We have a dollars element, what else should we add? And we all said time, because with, as any conservation leader will tell you, any one of the committee leaders that come on to this podcast later, any of the businesses that come on, they're gonna all say the same thing. The 90-10 principle or the 80-20 principle of you know, 90% or, or 10% of the people doing 90% of the work or 20% of the people doing 80% of the work. With conservation, it's 1% of the people doing 99% of the work. It is something that is typically not sexy it's not always going out and, and, and capturing you know, majestic bighorn sheep from a helicopter. Um, it is quite often sitting there writing letters to the editor of your local paper saying, this is a bad idea. Or it's quite often just telling people no. Conservation in and of itself is, is saying, hey, this is not the way to do this. We have to hold back on what we want to do um, either to the land or to a population, uh, to ensure that it exists. Conservation is inherently a no answer, and people don't like that. <laughs> so there's, it's, it's a very small amount of people doing the bulk of the work, and we want to change that. So that's why we were started. Uh, we were started out of Sitka's offices as an internal program for their employees, uh, but then some of their competitors honestly saw it and said, we want to do that too. So, the second member to get certified with 2% was a direct competitor of Sitka. It was First Light. And the, it was under this mantle um, that Jonathan Hart, uh, one of the co founders of Sitka, uh, said when uh, we hopped on the Randy Newberg podcast two and a half years ago um, with First Light, uh, Sitka and First Light on a podcast together, co founders on it together. Um, Jonathan said, conservation is not a competition. And First Light said that too when they said, hey, we'll be the second company to get certified, Uh, which was unheard of. Anyone who's familiar with the the hunting world and the politics of the hunting companies and and camo companies, typically the only thing that will get two founders of of camo businesses in the same room together is a a lawsuit against each other over camo patterns or product patterns. That's about the only reason why any... Folks, even though this industry is so tiny, so, so tiny. Sometimes it can feel like the hunting industry is huge. If you work or live in it, you feel like it's huge. Just go to Outdoor Retailer once and you realize how tiny the the hunting world is. And then you go to like a plumbing convention and that's way bigger than Outdoor Retailer. Um, It's a small, small world and conservation is not a competition. So that's how 2% was started. It was an internal program that then grew. I was hired on at the end of 2017 part time um, I moved to full-time midway through 2018. And then last summer, we brought on our first intern, uh, Calvin Herring, and we brought her on, and uh, she's coming up. Actually, a couple of days ago was her uh, one-year anniversary uh, since, since that started. Uh, and then this last fall, we brought her on part-time as our member coordinator. Uh, over the course of, of 2% um, launching, we... Uh, I think within the first six months of me being on, we had our first international members uh, up in Canada and Trinidad. And then we had someone sign up uh, in the UK as an individual member. And just in the last month, we've brought on our first European business member. Um, So in the last year, we got our first Canadian business members, and now now we have European business members, um, and it's growing and the, and, the, and the the whole purpose again is to have this alliance of businesses and individuals that are committed to a standard to giving back to ensure funding because we cannot depend on just excise taxes taking care of conservation which is has been the vast majority of the work uh, moving up until this point
0: so what would you say then is more important to conservation. And I don't know if there's a right or a wrong answer here, but time or money?
1: It depends on, on the need. So obviously if you live in an area that has a bunch of old barbed wire fences from, you know, old ranches and stuff that have since gone away, or or maybe ranches have been bought up and all turned into one big one, and you've got all these old barbed wire fences up, you're gonna need volunteer time to go and get those fences out. Or you're gonna have to pay contractors. And that's, that's the element of the time. Um, this last May, uh, I, I had the opportunity to go on a volunteer uh, wildlife water installation install. They call them guzzlers in Nevada, uh, where they put in a, a water collection system out in the middle of the desert. And this was done with the Fraternity of Desert Bighorn. It's the oldest sheep conservation uh, organization in the world. It was started by a group of like six dudes in the 50s who would go and bootleg put in, like it was illegal for them to put in these water resources at the time. <laughs> but they would go deep into the desert with mules, sometimes having mules die on the way out there, carrying the you know the, the metal and stuff out to build these water tanks uh, because all the condo developments of Vegas and, and whatnot, um, and other, other areas had, had done away with uh, the Water Resources for Wildlife. They, they started this organization that, that builds them. Um, in, in the case of the work they do, they need someone to pay for the helicopter uh, to get it in there. But then, uh, after that, they need volunteers to put it in, because otherwise you're paying contractors to do that. So, it really depends on the task. So like for that one, Sitka paid for the helicopter uh, of fuel and, and pilot hours and the insurance for it. Um, and then a bunch of us all went in, like 50 of us flew in by helicopter and it was like a 45 minute helicopter ride in. The alternative is a two and a half day four-wheeler treacherous ride in uh, to this very, very remote location to put in a water resource. And if you don't have the volunteers, you're looking at paying a contractor at minimum, 50 bucks an hour per person.
0: So, it's gonna add up real quick.
1: It adds up real quick. Same goes for like uh, goat surveys um, here in the West. If, if the Rocky Mountain Goat Alliance were to pay contractors to go out and do grid, you know, grid reporting of the crazy mountains here in Montana, which are aptly named, like the odds of surviving in that place, you gotta be full on Jeremiah Johnson, which is actually the history of the place. He did live in there for a bit. Um, It'd be it'd be astronomical to, to pay for that. Uh, if you look at, uh, like down in Georgia, as Mark will talk about when he hops on, when they're doing fawn counts, if you were to pay contractors to do that, you'd never be able to afford it. And the game agencies depend on all these volunteers to make it happen. Uh, up in northern Wisconsin, where the elk have been reestablished over the last almost 30 years now, uh, they have depended on volunteers to go out and do calf surveys, grid searching, which it, it, it means walking around through thick, thick. N- the Northwoods of Wisconsin are super thick this time of year, uh, and, and especially in the coming month, it'll get to where you're bushwhacking. But that's where the elk have their calves, and the calves will be in these tiny little holes sitting behind logs and stuff, you know, where old trees have dumped over and the dirt's all mounted up. That's where the calves hide. Uh, as the herds move along, until they're able to step over stuff and whatnot. And they use volunteers. Some of these folks have been volunteering on these things for almost 30 years, going out and getting covered in chiggers and ticks and poison ivy and, um, you know. Some, some of these guys have, have gone and they were old when they started volunteering, knowing that they'll never get to hunt these elk and have died since then. You know, just of old age, but they dedicated every spring to go out and grid search for elk that maybe five people a year would get a tag, which is the case now. Um, Or that just in general, elk would be back in the Northwoods, Wisconsin. This is going on all over the world. But again, it's a very tiny, tiny percentage of the population that's engaged in it.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's, uh, it's pretty commendable when you have people like you just spoke about who are doing uh, the work for the betterment of a species that they know they'll have zero chance really of ever being able to enjoy. Right.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Like not necessarily even hunt, but ever be able to just see, you know,
0: to lay eyes on them. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. So what is the, I guess talking a little bit more big picture here for 2%, what are some of the goals that the, um, Organization has over let's say the next five years. Yeah, so
1: Obviously more growth Um, and and not for the sake of growth Uh, (laughs) Again, our our work exists uh, to support the work of of different groups. So what we really are focusing on is is more blue-collar businesses uh, we want folks to be able to not just make a decision when they go to their local outdoor shop. You know what pack they'll buy, what jacket they'll buy, by whether or not it's 2% certified. What coffee they'll buy. You know what uh, energy supplements so we've got. Dark, uh, dark mountain ener- um, um, uh not energy supplements, but you know, um, yeah, workout dietary supplements. supplements, dietary supplements, dietary, They're, yeah. And Mountain Ops, Mountain Ops was one of the first five companies to get certified with 2%. Um, so again, direct competitors, but both certified. We, we, we want folks to not just be able to choose when they go there. We want them to be able to choose when they go to their local grocery store, when they go, um, to hire, you know, like, like, uh, uh, an electrician, you know, or a, a contractor. Is that contractor certified? We want to start bringing in more folks like that. And we know that they're giving back because when you go to a local banquet, Typically, there's at least one or two contractors who have bought a table at a, at a conservation funding banquet for their employees. And they, they often buy raffle tickets and stuff for their employees. We count all of that. You buy a table for your employees when you go to a, a local Ducks Unlimited, Turkey Federation, Mule Deer Federation, or sorry, Foundation, uh, QDMA banquet. You go to those, you buy a table for your employees, we count that. You buy raffle tickets for your employees, we count that. You buy drinks at that event, we actually count that because the organization has to pay a cover charge, pay a cover charge for those drinks uh, to ensure that those, you know, those drink vendors are are paid. Right. Uh, we count that as well. So, looking at all those things. Um, that we count, it should be attainable for any one of these, any business where they're at, if you're involved in conservation, to get certified. And then what we do with, with the business is we, you know, we put uh, 2% certified stickers on all your service trucks. We help you put it on all your invoices, on your email communication. We help you talk about why conservation and local conservation in your, in your area, your local habitat areas, why it's important to you as a business and why it's important to your employees. and We help you along the way. So that's a big thing for us. We want to really start bringing in those folks who have been carrying a huge chunk of the funding weight for these organizations and have them be acknowledged in their communities for giving back. Again, it's not growth for the sake of growth. We want them to be lifted up for how they've been giving back for so long. And we are a new mechanism to do that. Um, that's one area. Another is internationally. Uh, Here in the U.S., we like to brag about our North American model of conservation, which is hilarious, because it's a tax. Like, (laughs) for Americans, bragging about a tax. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Um, And, and... I, I like to. I've, I've used the metaphor enough that it might be kicking a dead horse here at this point. But if if paying in an excise tax on my hunting tags and my firearms and my my ammunition and stuff makes me a conservationist, then it you know paying my property tax also makes me an elementary school teacher. Then because right <laughs> right school. Um, Let's, let's not put participation trophies on things. That's, that's, that's what that is. When you call yourself a conservationist it's just because you hunt, that's a participation trophy. Um, we like to brag about our North American model because it's done incredible things. We took all these species from the brink of extinction, but it wasn't just the tax that did it. If the tax was enough, uh, National Wildlife Federation wouldn't have been founded in the same year based off of that tax model. Um, Ducks Unlimited would not have been founded the year after. Boone and Crockett would not have to exist uh, you know, for, for trying to encourage people to shoot only mature animals, which is part of why it was started. Not the main reason, uh, but part of why. Um, we wouldn't have all these different organizations if the tax was enough, and if just being a hunter and angler was enough. Uh, and other countries have been living without that tax. They have different tax programs. Like in Canada, there is some stuff, um, but you know, with our, our business members up there and and the conservation groups they support, and our committee member volunteers that are up there, um, you know, they 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 wish they had a tax because they've been shouldering it personally as individuals, individual responsibility, paying for uh, ecosystem m- maintenance and whatnot and habitat maintenance and, and bringing species back. They've been funding it privately forever. Uh, and here in America, you know, we like to brag about it uh, when we've let the government do it for us. So um, we're really working on international membership growth uh, as, as kind of a way to get some communication going on. Not just, again, not for the sake of just having interma- international members, but so that here in the US, we can learn from what these businesses and individuals have been doing uh, since, in some cases, before the U.S. even existed, um, and also so that we can bring the tools, because we have just this wealth. All these other countries, they look at what we've got for funding because of the excise tax, and they go, "Hey, you've been able to pay for it. Show us what you do with those dollars since you have them." Um, so, you know, all these partnerships we have between government and and nonprofit entities and private funding uh, here in the U.S. Overseas, even just across our northern and southern borders, they want to see how that works when there's actually enough dollars to make it happen. So there's this really cool um, symbiotic relationship that can go on with areas that have been short on funding teaching us how to do things and vice versa. Us having plenty of funding teaching them what to do when they have all of it. Um, and what it looks like and, and different tools. So we're, those are two key areas uh, for 2% in the, in the coming future. We're com- having on our website way more blue collar companies, not just outdoor industry folks, uh, but average conservationist folks and their businesses certified, uh, and then more folks outside the U.S. Um, so that we can all learn and grow together and take better care of wildlife together off that shared knowledge.
0: Yeah, and that's one thing that I'm actually really excited as we get further down the line um, with recording episodes uh, and things like that with speaking with some of these um, committee members who are, uh, you know, Canada, from Europe, from overseas and hear about their model of conservation, right? And how much mm-hmm. different it is and the struggles that they face um, and still be able to to be successful Um, with, uh, with wildlife. So yeah, that, that's one of the things I'm really looking forward to. Yeah. Yeah. So I have one more question for you here. And I was asked this when I spoke with, uh, Dan, um, earlier this year, but what, and and I want to know kind of what you think with someone in your position who's so, um, tightly, um, intertwined or or in close working relation with a lot of these, um, hunting orgs and fishing orgs is what do you think can be done to recruit new hunters and anglers?
1: Well, it, it, it goes back to what we were discussing at the, at the beginning, you know, um, we were fortunate to be raised in homes where that was a thing that was done and you know we've seen all these big initiatives you know big r3 initiative of recruiting and retaining and we see a lot of conservation groups starting up initiatives to try to get more hunters as and anglers as part of that i can tell you right now on the angling side there are many (laughs) there are way 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 more anglers than there are hunters like by a magnitude it's it's, it's obscene how many more there are, um, when, when we, you know, look at which groups are loud, uh, in the space and, or not, not groups meaning conservation groups. But when we look at the two, like typically you don't see angling stuff in the media that much comparatively. Um, you don't see, um, you know, most, most people don't even know of a angling conservation group in their area. Uh, and and part of that is that the fishing crowd has never really had to stand up to, you know, the PETA types um, or humane society types because fish are slimy and they, you know it's <laughs> there weren't you know even in like Finding Nemo and Finding Dory there's fish getting et right yeah um, <laughs> it's funny we I literally
0: um, just watched that with my daughter this morning
1: <laughs> yeah yeah whereas you know Bambi has been around forever. Uh, and that was that was watched in this house the other the other night, much to my chagrin. Um, <laughs> you know, and and so those of us who who shoot furry things and and eat furry things have been um, uh, defending ourselves for much much longer than uh, the the slime and and scaly end of things. Uh, and it, it it's just an interesting um, study in human nature. But um, I I think uh, as as far as getting more folks in. That to me is in some ways the wrong question. Um, we already we already have in some parts of the country we're at carrying capacity for the number of hunters. So in in, in wildlife conservation, the term carrying capacity is how much can an ecosystem support. Right, and that's that's, that's defining species. So you would use that like. You know, if we've got this many deer, how many can we have in there before they're overpopulated? How many do we need to have to ensure the population doesn't get wiped out? You know, uh, same goes for predators. How many can we support in there? And humans are a controlled, most of the time, and when they're not controlled, they're called poachers, um, predator. Uh, on on the landscape. In some parts of the U.S., we are already at carrying capacity for some species. Um, Even if folks are balking at that, well, like even here in Montana, you have to draw a goat tag, right? Mm -hmm. Because we're over carrying capacity for goat hunters. There are more people who want to hunt goats than there are goats to hunt. Um, So in some ways, how do we get more hunters is not the right question in my mind. Um, same, same with anglers. When we look at the needs of conservation and continuing this moving forward, it's not having the, um, a, an abundance of hunters and anglers that will ensure a future for hunting and angling. It's having the resources to maintain the landscape to, so that future generations actually have the option. Uh, because at present, there's, there's an overabundance. Uh, we have to shut down different streams here in Montana, Montana, where 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 like a river runs through. It was filmed here. I'm, I'm literally 20 minutes from where a river runs through. It was filmed and uh, it wasn't actually filmed where it was written in the book to take place. A big chunk of it was filmed here in the Bozeman area. We actually have to cap how many people are getting to fish during certain times a year because the water levels drop so low because agriculture is pulling so much water to feed the people and the cattle and whatnot that are in the area. We do something called hoot hours uh, because the water drops so low from humans taking it. So we're already above carrying capacity um, in parts of the country. So we should instead be looking at how do we engage folks to be giving to conservation who are not hunters or anglers? Because if we were to, we, we, we already have a tax on all hunters and anglers, and it's simply not enough. Even if we were to increase those hunters and anglers, some parts of the country cannot handle more and as you get to more populated areas, they definitely cannot handle more uh, and opportunity will continue to drop as as hunters become more successful. That's a part that's not been part of the conversation as much is because of new technology, hunters are way more successful than we ever used to be. We have all these scent control options for whitetail hunting. We have all these amazing created in a lab with with you know anodes attached to turkey heads and deer heads and stuff to see how they see color and how they perceive sound and stuff that make us just wildly successful. Our firearms and archery equipment are way more potent than they ever used to be, which has led to a resurgence of you know muzzle loaders and and uh, longbows and recurves being used by hunters who want to actually have some hunt involved instead of plug and play you know where you can grab a bow out of the box and the next day be, Hitting a target, you know, hundred yards away with with no wind, you know, Um, we've become so proficient as hunters that the population is more easily controlled with a smaller number. So the answer isn't necessarily when you look at the data having more hunters. It's having better educated hunters. It's having hunters that are better um, uh, that are are better spokespeople for our heritage in hunting and angling uh hunters who speak up and catch poachers who self-regulate better um so that we are viewed in the public eye way differently than you know the disney movies paint us to be right um and to engage folks who are not hunters and anglers to support what we do to support our vital role in funding um uh, you know with through our, through the taxes, the things that we do through that, and also our role on the landscape with being a part of the ecosystem. The bulk of humans live in cities now uh, and not in rural spaces, meaning their opportunities to hunt and fish are not just limited but in some cases are not an option in their lifetimes to to be able to take the time to be an ethical hunter or angler um, so the conversation in our minds is more, how do we make this attainable to everyone and show hunting and angling as a positive, positive, positive natural part of being a human and uh, having a healthy ecosystem. And if they choose to hunt and fish, fantastic. But let's get that conservation ethic in them first. Uh, Because the odds are, and, and not odds are, we've seen it played out and proven, if you teach people about wildlife conservation with hunting and angling being some of the tools in there um, and show them the examples of what happens when hunting and angling um, in ethical and managed ways are not involved, and I mean all the poaching and wildlife trade in Africa and Asia, um, where you know this whole situation with COVID-19 was started because people were starving and they created black market markets that then the government in China... Ha- uh, they risk revolution or allowing these, these wet markets to exist, um, that's the other option down the road, is, is wanton waste and, and wanton um, abuse of wildlife. Um, so if we can show the conservation ethos to people, what it means, giving your time and dollars to folks who are not already tapped in, and get them involved, we ensure a healthy and vibrant future, not just for ourselves and future generations, but for the ecosystems themselves.
0: Yeah, and I think that that's that's ultimately what um, us as conservationists are after, is um, being able to preserve what we have for ourselves, for the generations and generations to come, um, I believe it's uh, it was Doug Dern I saw on Instagram the other day, who uh, his his saying kind of is it's not ours it's just our turn right and yeah. I think if a lot of people you know live by that that mantra or that motto I think it a lot of good can come out of that
1: absolutely um, and you know we we all live in 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 such unique headspaces folks folks like to you know uh, and and I and by folks I mean. Different generations like to poke at other generations of, you know, you're just in it for yourselves. <laughs> you know, um, Millennials like to say it about Boomers, Boomers like to say it about Millennials, Gen Xers like pretend like they're not involved. Oh yeah, absolutely are. Um, uh, but if you have come in close contact with human mortality, you realize how short life is, and how short your opportunity to both partake and, in, and then ensure a future for others to partake. How, how limited your opportunities in your life actually are. It comes down to a very unique set of moments for most of us when we're in our 20s and 30s, and, and, and maybe 40s and 50s in the off off chance. But usually it starts, you know, at a at a time when you actually have a little bit of means to give back in some way, or you just see no other option but to give back. And right now, we're still in a time period where we have the option without seeing the consequences. The truth is, we don't have the option. We have to be giving back. All of us do have to be giving back to ensure a future. It's just we're not seeing immediate consequences for not giving back. It's going to play out for our kids. And in some parts of the country, it's already playing out. And all over the world, it's already playing out. But in our little isolated social media bubbles, in our little social bubbles, maybe where we live, you know, we don't see the big picture because naturally we are wired to only think of ourselves. But the consequences are real and they're already happening, even if we're not seeing them. So we want to make it attainable and is why we're so thrilled to have this podcast launch, so that folks can be tapped into things outside of their little bubbles. And expand their minds and be enlightened as to what is actually going on in the world, and not just what their crazy uncle is saying on Facebook, not just what they see in their backyard. You know, um, uh, in, in Wyoming there are there are parts of Wyoming that are absolutely ran over with pronghorn and mule deer. Just across the border here in Montana, our local pronghorn herd that used to be over 300 here in this in this valley is down to about 30. Um, so it's different, you know, we're just a few hours away and just because there's a lot right, you know, down by them, doesn't mean that it's the same here. And that goes for every single species you can think of and it's happening everywhere. So this podcast, we are absolutely thrilled to be able to share pertinent, relevant and an actionable info for folks, no matter what your demographic is, no matter what you do for work, you're an average person. You can get involved and have a positive impact that way outweighs your personal status, your personal abilities, um, and and where you may even live, which is just a, an incredible thing to be involved in um, as a society at this at this uh, day and age. You can spend your time fighting on Facebook with with random folks arguing about this, that, or whatever, or you can do something real with your life and 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 have real world impacts. Like I said earlier, put a pin on the map for where you made things better for the future, and we're just we're just thrilled to have the opportunity to work on that with you.
0: Yeah, well, thank you. I'm I'm super excited too about being able to help spread the message and bringing other people who, like you just said, are in certain regions of the country who don't know about what's going on uh, in other parts of the country in terms of conservation uh, and wildlife. So to be able to help spread that message, I think is is paramount because you never know at what point um you may want to partake in recreating in that area right whether if you're yeah. a midwestern guy or an eastern guy and you know finally the the itch to to go out west and hunt mule deer or to hunt elk you know gets you that now you you have an understanding of maybe issues that they've been facing in the particular area you want to go and you can you know help Give back to that area, even though you're on the other side of the country. So I, I think that a lot of good can come out of the message that that we're helping spread.
1: Yeah, and I'm 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 ecstatic. Um, and and I think folks, you know, one thing we've we've always endeavored to do with two percent, our our logo is purple for a reason. Conservation should be apolitical, meaning not political. It should be nonpartisan, right? Um, and that's that's why even though purple is a really difficult color for design and stuff like that, <laughs> we we stuck with it because it's it's part of our it's it's part of our, our, our entire existence uh, uh, and and purpose for being is is no matter who you are, what you believe, what what you're involved with, this is something you should be able to do. We've always endeavored to have positive content. We we try to shy away from anything that's conflict heavy. Anything that is is um, you know uh, conflict seeking for the sake of conflict see- conflict seeking which uh, uh, let's be honest, the social media algorithms hate that. Uh, you post nice stuff that content does not fly. We've been on meetings with on, on phone calls with Instagram and Facebook like, hey, why is our follower count only doing this when we're doing all this? Um, they, they've always said, well, could you post stuff that maybe people would get in an argument about? and we're, no, we won't do it. Um and we, we we don't want to because we want anyone to feel like they can come to the campfire. The campfire circle is big. Come, pop a squat, get involved, no matter where you are, what you know what what your religious background is, what your economic background is. Conservation should be open to all, and it should not be a competition. and it should not be a marketing buzzword. And it should be something that we all see as our personal responsibility. And I'm absolutely thrilled for the content that's going to be on this podcast, that people will be able to look forward to it as something that they'll be encouraged by, inspired by, and have their lives enriched by, and not have something that puts their blood pressure through the roof, you know, when they listen to it. If that's your thing, go on Facebook, fight with random trolls, but yeah,
0: yeah not, no, yeah. Uh, no negativity here.
1: Yeah. Yeah. This is, this is actionable stuff, which is something I think our world desperately, desperately needs. And man, you taking the initiative with it and, and Dan, uh, really helping moving the ball forward for it. I'm just thrilled for, Yeah.
0: well, yeah, I think, um, the, the listeners can expect a lot of great conversations similar to what, um, what we just had here coming forward. So um, Jared, I really appreciate you taking some time. I know we probably ran a little bit longer than we thought, but it was such a good conversation that I wasn't going to try to, to come to a hard stop or anything. So thank you again for, for taking the time to, to come on and for, for partnering with the average conservationist with 2% for conservation. Um, I, I think we're, we're going to do a lot of good things with this podcast.
1: Looking forward to it. Absolutely stoked.
0: Okay. Thanks a lot, Jared. Thank you. All right. All right. Well, there you have it, folks. A huge thank you to Jared Frazier of 2% for Conservation for speaking with me today. Uh, If you're interested in learning more about 2% for Conservation, you can check out the website, fishandwildlife.com. There you can see all the certified brands that have committed to conservation that you should support when you shop for your gear, coffee, guiding services, and really everything else under the sun. Uh, I encourage you to follow 2% on social media where they post only positive content. So rest assured that um, you'll enjoy their very positive conservation-focused posts in your feed. Uh, Again, if you'd like to learn more about 2% for Conservation, you can look for them online, on social media, or at fishandwildlife.com. Thanks for tuning in to the Average Conservationist Podcast. Stay safe, everyone, and remember that conservation starts with you.